I hope everybody's doing well tonight. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And tonight, we're going to move into the 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We're going to look at a, a familiar scripture, uh, but I hope that while we do, we'll, we'll all hear the Holy Spirit speak a, a fresh and a personal challenge to each of us through the text that we're going to view tonight. Um, now, the question that I want to pose to you and my sermon title tonight is this. Are you greater than John the Baptist? And I don't mean that in a cliche way. I don't mean that in a just a high-minded turn of phrase. I don't mean that to sound biblically cute. Uh, I really mean that. I want you to really ask yourself this question. Am I greater than John the Baptist? And most of us know who John the Baptist is, and we'll talk about him here shortly. But that's a question that we really need to answer. And I ask this question because Jesus makes a statement in verse 11 of Matthew 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So if we are believers, then we should be greater than John the Baptist. And if not, then we need to repent and be what Jesus says we should be. This means that we need to answer the question as to whether we are greater than John the Baptist or not. We need to know where we stand on this statement. Jesus says that if you're even the least in the kingdom of heaven, you'll be greater or you are greater than John the Baptist. I need to answer the question in my life. Am I really greater than John the Baptist? If I am great, if I'm not, I need to repent and something needs to change so I'll be what Christ said I should be. And in order to do that, it makes sense that we need to know what it means to be greater than John the Baptist. And that's what we're hopefully going to do tonight. To begin to answer the question, let's start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 11. Um, now in chapter 10, just to kind of give some context, Jesus has commissioned his apostles to go and preach the gospel, performing attesting miracles in the surrounding cities. He's taught them a great deal about coming persecution, the divisive effect of the gospel, and about the reward that comes to those who receive the message of Christ, regardless of who brings it. Then we read in verse 1 here, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now there's, there's some debate, just as a side note, about what exactly is meant when Matthew writes their cities. Um, some people think that that means the the hometown of the disciples, the cities that they came from. Other people believe that uh, this means, by, by their cities, Matthew means all the Jews. So this would mean that Jesus would just go out into all the cities of Israel preaching and teaching the gospel. And still others believe that this means that Jesus was going to preach in the cities that he had sent the disciples to go before him to preach in, perform a testing miracles, kind of paving the way. Remember, finding out who was worthy, who would receive their greeting and who would not. If you remember when we preached about the disciples' command to go in, find who is worthy, enter the house. If, it stay, if they were truly worthy, let their peace remain on them. If not, leave and dust the, the dust, shake the dust off your feet. Uh, we can't really be sure which one of these is correct, which one of these interpretations is correct about what Matthew means when he writes their cities. 
Um, I tend to believe the last option. But in any case, Jesus begins to go out and preach and teach and minister in the surrounding areas. And as he does, word gets back to John the Baptist about these things that are going on. He hears word of Jesus' ministry that is now rolling in full force. The disciples have been sent out. Jesus himself is going out into the cities, preaching, teaching, and presumably performing miracles. And in verse 2, Matthew writes, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What deeds did John hear about? Well, again, we definitely know the disciples of Jesus Jesus were performing miracles and attesting signs because Jesus had commissioned them to go out and perform these things as proof that the gospel that they brought concerning him was true. And also, it's, it's most likely that Jesus himself, as he goes out and starts preaching and teaching, he's probably performing these miracles as well as he typically tended to do. Um... However, another issue that we need to speak to here, the larger issue, is that of why John was in prison. If you read in chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel, you'll see that Matthew kind of provides the backstory, and most of you are already familiar with it. Um, John had confronted King Herod because King Herod was committing adultery. He had married his brother's wife. And John confronted Herod on this, and he told him it wasn't lawful for him to have his brother's wife that he was living in adultery, and of course Herod, being a king and not necessarily caring about the law of God truly in his heart, became angry about this. You'll see that he arrested John, and he really wanted to kill him, and the only reason he didn't kill him was because he was afraid of the people who revered John as a prophet. Later he would have John beheaded, but at this time John was sitting in prison when he heard the word that Jesus was preaching and teaching and that miracles were being performed. So John did a seemingly strange thing in response to this. He sent some of his disciples, as we said, and if you look in Luke's gospel, he sent two disciples specifically to ask Jesus a very strange question. Again, he says, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? Now, obviously, every Jew that Matthew would be writing to and every Jew at this time when John would say this to his disciples knew exactly what the who is to come reference meant. At that time, every Jew would have been brought up understanding that the Messiah was to come and would restore Israel. That reference was a no-brainer. He means, are you the Messiah who's coming to restore Israel, or do we look for another Messiah? Now, if you understand a little bit how the Jews at that time saw the Messiah, and even Orthodox, many Orthodox Jews today see the Messiah. Um, they'll tell you that the Messiah could literally be any Jewish man who is an Orthodox Jew and could gain political control. It could be anybody. So the idea that it was going to be easily recognizable right off the bat may, may not necessarily be a concrete thing with the people that are hearing this message. It would have been more like every Israelite would have been looking for at any time the Messiah to show up. And how do you know he is the Messiah? Well, obviously the Old Testament tells us that he would do the signs and wonders that Christ did. But socially and culturally, the view had become more of a pragmatic view, meaning that the Jews at the time would have said, well, we know he's the Messiah because he's overthrown the Roman government and put the Jews back on top. Does that make sense? We look at it one way because we look at it through 
the lens of New Testament truth. They were looking at it in a more pragmatic way at that time. So every Jew would have been looking for the Messiah. The strange thing is that John the Baptist asked the question of Jesus as to whether or not he was the Messiah or if they should keep looking for someone else to be the Messiah. Now, at this point, I want to point something out to you. Some people say that John was asking this question because he's in prison and he's about to be beheaded, whether he knows it or not at this point, and he's beginning to waver in his faith a little. He's under, he's depressed maybe, he's anxious, he's, he's uh, feeling overwhelmed, and he starts to waver a little bit. Doubt starts to creep in as to whether or not this is really the Messiah. He just needs to be, he needs the Lord to reassure him in his faith. The problem is there's really no biblical evidence for that view. None. Um, there seems to be more evidence that would support the exact opposite case. John is the one whom, of whom it was foretold by the prophets that he would come and prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. He was extremely bold at all times whenever he spoke of Christ and whenever he pointed toward Jesus as being the Messiah. He was the one who first said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Also, We'll come back to John in a minute. But also, just logically speaking, it doesn't follow that John would waver and begin to have his faith crumble here, even under these circumstances. Um, let me ask a question. Was John the only one in the New Testament that was ever jailed and awaiting execution because of his faith in Christ? Well, no. Was Paul imprisoned and was he awaiting execution? Yes. Did Paul's faith waver? No. Peter was in prison. Did his faith waver as he was in prison or did he wait for someone to come to him in his old age and take him by the hands and lead him where he would not go and according to church history, execute him being crucified upside down? His faith didn't waver there. Did any of the other apostles' faith seem to waver whenever they were under this kind of duress? No. So why would we just assume that John the Baptist the one who first pointed to Christ as the Messiah in the flesh here, why would we just assume that his faith began to waver or that he began to doubt? We shouldn't. So why did John ask the question that he asked then? One reason might be that while he did not doubt, he didn't totally understand everything that was going on. Again, John also may have had some ideas that being the Messiah meant that Christ was going to come and there would be a governmental overthrow. It may be that John thought, like others, that Jesus' rule would begin soon, and as he sat in prison and he hears that Jesus is preaching and teaching and his ministry starts to take a route that does not appear to be progressing toward him being crowned the, the physical king of Israel, he might start to wonder not whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, but what Jesus' plan actually is. Still, I think there's a better explanation for John's question that seems to be more in line with his general character. And this is what I really want us to grasp onto tonight. John's entire life, as far as we know from the Bible, was centered around one thing, pointing others to the Christ. That was his entire existence, even before birth. In fact, the Apostle John characterizes this as the testimony about John the Baptist. 
This is the thing that we should know about John the Baptist. He says, in, if you look in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we read in verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They thought he was the Christ. They thought he might be the Christ. He let them know quickly, no, that's not me. Don't be confused. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Referencing the prophet uh, that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy, meaning the Messiah. He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then in verses 26 and 27, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He's already promoting Christ as being above himself, more important than himself, more important than his life at this point. In John chapter 3, when John the Baptist's disciples were upset because more and more people were going after Jesus to be baptized instead of coming to their teacher to be baptized. John didn't exalt himself. He didn't wrestle for prominence. I want you to get this scene here in John chapter 3. John's followers are coming to John and they're all stressed out and they're upset and they're contentious toward Jesus and they're saying, hey, the, the one that you pointed to at the River Jordan, he's going out, he's baptizing people, and everybody's leaving you, teacher, and they're following after him. And the implication there is that this isn't right because you're John the Baptist. You're the one that was prophesied about that would prepare the way of the Lord. You're not small potatoes here, John. People should not be leaving you. You're speaking truth. You are the one that's bringing Israel to repentance so they can receive the Lord. You are the one that's preparing people for the Messiah. How dare people go to this Jesus and leave you? There was a jealousy there among John's followers concerning Christ that was never in John. What did John say to them? He said of Jesus, he must increase but I must decrease. John never promoted himself and he always pushed others toward Jesus. Listen to this. Even when he was still in the womb of his mother, when Mary, pregnant with the Christ at the time, came to visit John's mother, Elizabeth, what does the Bible say? It says that he leapt in her womb. And what was the result? She was filled with the Holy Spirit And she glorified not the baby that was in her womb, who, by the way, had already been surrounded by some pretty amazing divine phenomena that made the people say, surely this child will be a great man. If you remember how his father was mute because he didn't believe the message of the angel until he was born. And then all of a sudden, when he wrote down his name is John, his tongue was loosed and he prophesied and everybody in the hometown said, wow, this baby is going to be something special. But she didn't glorify the fruit of her own womb. She glorified the baby that was in the womb of Mary. 
Even from the womb, John the Baptist leapt, starting a chain reaction that would lead to his own mother glorifying Christ instead of him. You see? Even from the womb, he was doing this. And that was his M.O. throughout his entire life. We never see a shred of scripture that says that he did anything. I mean anything. But live a life that said, I must decrease, he must increase. He's greater than me. He is before me. He is above me. He's preeminent above me. He deserves all the adoration of Israel and the whole world. I deserve none. He shouldn't be baptized by me. I should be baptized by him. You see? That's his whole life. In fact, the first two disciples that would follow Jesus were two of John's followers. If you look in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, again in verse 35, it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. In fact, John tells us in verse 40 that one of these two disciples is none other than Andrew, the brother of Peter, who would be, Andrew would be one of the twelve. And if you remember when we talked about the disciples, he would be one that was in that upper tier, the most intimate group with Christ. He wasn't in the, the three, but of the top four, he was in that group. While the idea that John was wavering in faith is merely conjecture, there's abundant evidence that would lead us to believe that even in prison, John would be concerned with not so much his own life, but pushing others, including his closest and most devout followers, toward Jesus. Now that, again, could prove to be quite a task. That may not be easy. Um, if you read through the Gospels, like we mentioned, uh, you'll notice that occasionally we're given a glimpse of the attitude of John's disciples, and they often seem to be very protective of John's prominence in Israel. They seem to be jealous of Jesus. Their desire would have been that John be exalted as the great prophet that he was instead of being put in prison while Jesus went around preaching and performing miracles and having many flock to him. And they often regarded Jesus as competition for John instead of the Messiah that John heralded. That doesn't mean that's the way John felt about it. That's the way his disciples felt about it. But that's why John sent his disciples to Jesus with the piercing question. I want us to really notice this. If you look in Luke's gospel, you'll see that, again, he sent two disciples. The reason John sent two disciples is because, again, John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And according to Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19, he needed to send at least two or more witnesses so that whatever answer they received from the mouth of Christ or whatever they witnessed when they went to Christ, they could bring it back and that testimony would be established by the mouth of two or more witnesses. Also, many have inferred along the years that the two that John sent were probably the two disciples of his that would have been the least willing to accept that Christ was the Messiah. And if these could be one, then the rest would be one as well. This was a great act of devotion to Christ, but it's also a great act of pastoral care on the part of John. 
John wanted his disciples to believe for the same reason that Jesus states back in chapter 10. Now, if you remember, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, um, in verses 40 and 42, just real briefly, Jesus taught that whoever received a prophet or a righteous man or even the lowest disciple because of the truth of the gospel that they brought and because of the name of Jesus whom they represented, they would receive a reward. And if you look carefully, as Jesus talks about these, he talks about them in matter of rank. And he talks about them in a way that says that if you receive, whoever you received because they represented Christ, you would receive a reward that coincided with their office or their status. If you received a prophet because they represented Christ, then you received a prophet's reward. If you received a righteous man in the name of Christ, you received a righteous man's reward. And if you received even the smallest disciple who had nothing, the lowliest believer who had nothing but a cup of water, then you would by no means lose your reward even though it was very small. Why did John care so much, even while he's in prison, that his disciples go to Christ and understand finally what he's been saying the whole time, that this is the Messiah, this is who you need to lay your anchor into, this is who you need to latch on to, forget me and forget my name, but know Christ and follow him. Why did he care so much? Because like all good pastors and all good shepherds, he loved his people more than he loved himself. Because he loved his Lord more than he loved himself. He wanted his followers to have the ultimate reward. Well, if you receive a righteous man, you get a righteous man's reward. And you receive a prophet, and you get a prophet's reward. What reward do you get if you receive the Messiah? You get the Messiah's reward. You get eternal life. John had already said that to receive Jesus was to receive God and the reward of God when he said in John 3, for he whom God has sent utters the word of God, forgives the spirit without measure. He's saying the same thing Christ has been saying. If he, the one who comes, I mean, Jesus comes in the name of God, he's speaking the words of God. If you receive him, that means you're also receiving the one who sent him. Christ would say that. He said, if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. If you love me, you love the one who sent me, right? If you would, know, if you would love my father, you'd love me because he sent me. He says, whom God sent utters the word of God. The words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He wanted his followers to have the Messiah's reward, the one that only the Messiah could have. The Messiah himself. Eternal life, knowing God intimately. So these followers of John came and asked Jesus the question as to whether or not he was the Messiah. And if you look in Luke's account, again, it says, In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Then back in Matthew 11, we read in verse 4, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You notice that Jesus didn't simply answer with the answer of, yes, I am the Messiah. He didn't just tell them, yes, I'm the Messiah. What did he do? He simply allowed the Holy Spirit to answer through the attesting miracles that proved who he was. 
specifically for these disciples of John so that they might believe and return with this affirmation. Again, if you look in Luke's gospel, when they come with the question, it says, in that hour he performed these miracles. Then he turned to them and said, you go tell John, not what, I, not, not what I've said, you go tell John what you have seen, what you have heard. What have you borne witness to? Did you see the miracles? Yes. Did you hear what was preached? Yes. You go tell John. You go bear witness to this. Just as a side note, I think that in and of itself should challenge our ideas about why God should or should not bless us sometimes, shouldn't it? You know, we live in a country where many in our churches think that God should do miracles or he should rain down blessings because it will benefit them. And while God does delight in blessing his people, make no mistake about it, God is a blesser. He loves blessing his people. We see here that he blessed many and it had astoundingly little to do anything with them. Really had nothing to do with him. In the same way that Jesus said that Lazarus died and was resurrected, not because of Lazarus, but so that others would see and believe. And in the same way that the man in John 9 was born blind and then healed so that God would be glorified and others would believe. Here, these people were benefited so that John's disciples would believe on Christ. Paul speaks about this when he writes of God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever sat down and prayed and said, God, please bless me for the primary purpose? Not that my pain will end, not that my life is, more, is less stressful, not that it's easier for me to make ends meet at the end of the month, none of that stuff. Will you please bless me primarily so that other people will be benefited? I'll be honest with you, my prayer life does not often reflect that love toward other people. Typically, when I pray for things, it's because I'm uncomfortable. Typically, when I pray for things, it's because I'm frustrated and I've had just about all I think I can take. And I want my life to get better. And I think I miss out on a lot because I think biblically, when you look at it, I think biblically, the heart of God would say, yeah, Brian, pray. Don't be so unilateral in your, in your vision here. You pray that you'll grow spiritually so that God will be glorified and so that others will be edified. You pray that you'll be blessed, not so that you can have new things or that you don't have to worry about money so much. You pray that you'll be blessed, Brian, so that other people who are in need will have their needs met. You pray that you'll be healthy not so you can enjoy life and go out and be active like you used to be and all those things without pain in the morning with all the creaks and the cracks and all that stuff. You pray so that you can be healthy so that you can go and spend the youth you should have already spent before that you wasted. Now you spend it out for the souls of others who won't hear the gospel if you don't go to them or somebody doesn't go to them. I think if we thought that way, I think our prayer lives would be greatly different. Maybe our prayers will be answered more. In any case, Jesus performed these works proving that he was the Messiah whom John was trying to push his disciples towards. Then he sent them back to John and he sent these men who had been jealous or even resentful of him because of his prominence over John back with the proof of these miracles saying to them, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
Well, that's pointed, isn't it? They come and they're skeptical. This is the guy that's trying to take John the Baptist's place. John's sitting there rotting in prison. He's out here preaching. Everybody's leaving John. They, they're just forgetting John like yesterday's newspaper. They forget that he's the one that was bringing the nation to revival when it had been spiritually dead for over 400 years. They forget that. And, we're, and now this Jesus is coming and taking all the attention from our rabbi, our teacher here, whom we love. And they go to him and they say, okay, are you the Messiah or do we look for somebody else? Because John's in prison and you're not doing anything about it. And Jesus turns in the power of the Holy Spirit. He heals the sick and he makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. And he preaches the gospel like no man has ever preached it before. And he turns to him and says, you go tell what you heard and you saw. And blessed is everyone who is not offended by me, by the way. What do you think that did to the heart of these men? Well, if anything was going to change it, it was that. That was it. John's been pointing toward Christ his entire life. He has done nothing but point toward Christ his entire ministry. And when all else seemed to fail, what did he do? He sent them to Christ. And Jesus did what nobody else could do. Gave them proof of who he was and challenged them to believe it. Now does this mean that John was unduly belittled in the eyes of Israel? Absolutely not. Even when people fail to notice our sacrifice or our devotion, I want to let you know God never does. God sees everything you do. When you do the smallest thing or the most humble thing behind closed doors for the glory of his name, other people may totally miss it. You may do it right in front of them. And other people, we're so selfish, we go around and we overlook each other all the time. But God never, ever, ever misses one thing you do, good or bad. Time and time again, Scripture confirms the fact that God honors those who honor Him, and He will reward those who are faithful and obedient to Him. We should always be rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Why? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back, not from man, but from the Lord. That should be our goal. You'll notice that neither Jesus nor John exalted themselves here. John didn't say he was anything, and even here Jesus didn't verbally claim anything of himself in this account. However, both exalted the office of the other. Now that may be something we just kind of skip over, but that's really important because in doing so, they both honored God above everyone else because God was the one who established the office of each one. John honored Jesus as the Messiah sent by God above all others. And Jesus honored John's office in turn. We see in verse 7, it says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, whom, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, when Jesus asked what the people went out to see, 
He's reminding them of when all of Israel flocked to the wilderness to hear John and be baptized by him. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 3, we see that John the Baptist had been out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey. He wore the prophet's garb of camel hair and a leather belt. He was a Nazarite under one of the strictest Old Testament vows. He's out there and he's preaching something that no one had preached in a very long time. He's preaching repentance and a return of the nation of Israel who were relying on their biologic tie to Abraham instead of their spiritual tie to God. He was calling them to repentance and to baptism of repentance, and if you remember, we said that that meant that they were being baptized into the nation, the true spiritual nation of Israel, just like a Gentile would have had to go through a ceremony to be considered part of Israel. What what he's saying is, you may be a Jew in your DNA, you're not a Jew in your heart, and the people were coming out to him. That doesn't mean they came one day. This wasn't a one-day rally. This wasn't a night-for-life conference. This wasn't your best life now in some coliseum where you buy tickets for $50 and stupid t-shirts. This wasn't a book signing. This was a man in the wilderness preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit, doing his one job that his life was meant for, and people were coming out miles and miles away from the cities, out in the middle of nowhere, to hear him speak and be baptized by him. And Jesus is reminding these people that they were ones coming out to him for this purpose. He's reminding them that John was indeed a great man of God and that they had all revered him that way. However, he was also revealing the real reason that John was so great and the real reason that they had truly been drawn to him. They might not have even understood why they were so drawn to John. Have you ever heard someone speak and you don't know why, but they just grabbed you? Yeah. Now, if you've been in in Christ very long, if someone's preaching the gospel, you know why it grabs you. Because that's who you are. That's what your life's about. But do you remember when you were maybe first born again or maybe when God was calling you out of darkness and you would hear somebody speak truth and you it was like you'd never heard anything like it before and you didn't even know why you were listening but you couldn't stop? You had to hear, even if it scared the mess out of you, you had to hear it. You couldn't just abandon it. I see a lot of grins right now, so I know people are knowing what I'm talking about. Well, these people were going out to John because it was grabbing them, and they might not have even known why it was grabbing them. But Jesus is going to let them know, oh, this is why it got your attention. This is why you kept coming back to John all the way out in the wilderness. When Jesus asks, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He's asking, basically, if they went out all that way into the wilderness time and time again just to hear some worthless silliness. See, a reed by a stream that's being blown by the breeze, all it does is just kind of rustle up against other reeds. Or if you have one that's broken and the stem's kind of hollowed out, it might make an indistinct sort of whistle every now and then when the wind hits it at the right angle. And Jesus is asking them, did you really go out into the wilderness and keep going there to hear a message that was as worthless as a rustling reed? Were you going to John for hollow talk? Now the obvious answer is, no, they did not. 
He also asked, what then did you go to see? Not just here, but see. A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. This question is calling the people to remember if they went out to be impressed by the attractive things of this life when they went to see John. He's asking if they journeyed out to hear John because he was going to be a flamboyant speaker or if, if he was enticing in presentation. Now, obviously, they didn't because, as Jesus points out, if that's what they were going out there for, they would have just gone to the palace where people dressed in the latest fashion and they flaunt the enticements of the world. Today, these questions would amount to this. Do you keep going out to hear someone preach worthless, rustling stories and false promises and religion that doesn't save or transform? Do you keep going out to hear preaching because the preacher is flamboyant or funny or edgy or because he's wearing skinny jeans and a V-neck or because the service is a 45-minute rock concert with a 15-minute motivational speech about how you can be your best you tagged on to the end of it? See, people in America, they'll do all those things. Because it's not dangerous to do so. We get in our cars in the air conditioner, the heat, and we drive five or ten minutes, and we sit in these nice little padded chairs, and we listen and have people entertain us and tickle our ears, and then we go back home, and we eat whatever we want, and watch the ball game, and there's no harm, no foul, there's no cost, there's nothing that would deflect us from that, naturally speaking. But these people, when they decided to go out to John, they went out in the wilderness. It could be a long way. You had to walk most of the time. It could be treacherous. It wasn't so easy. These people wouldn't have put up with that nonsense. They could get that back in town. Jesus is presenting the obvious fact that the wilderness in which John preached was not a place for such things. It was a place for the things that mankind would see as crude. This was a place for a man speaking serious truth, wearing a prophet's garb of camel hair and a leather belt. No flash, no flair, only truth. And Jesus reminds the people that this is what they went out to hear all those times because this is what they really wanted. What does he say? Finally, he says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, a prophet. These people didn't go out to hear a silly sermon preached by some clown hoping to fill up pews with people who had given the offering plate and wear silly Christian t-shirts and live in their sin the rest of their life and die and go and bust hell wide open to being completely untransformed after a life of frivolity within the church walls. They didn't go out for that. They went out because they wanted truth. They wanted a prophet. And Jesus affirms that John was just such a prophet. Jesus doesn't stop there, though. Listen to what he says. He continues on by saying of John, Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And again, as we said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John wasn't just a prophet. He was greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament. But if I ask the question, I imagine if I ask the question to every say, if I took all of you into a room and we sat there and had a little conversation, I said, okay, why was John greater than all the Old Testament prophets? I imagine the answers would vary and we might not get it right too often. Have you ever really thought about that? Why was John the greatest prophet of the Old Testament? Think of all the prophets in the Old Testament. 
Go to Moses. Moses did some pretty impressive things, didn't he? He's the one that God used to bring the plagues upon Egypt, part of the Red Sea. So many other things. What about Elijah? Called down fire from heaven? Killed the 450 prophets of Baal? Outran a chariot? Raised the dead? What about Elisha? He did so many miracles. When after he was dead, they threw a dead guy on his bones and he came back to life. But did John the Baptist do any of those things? Scripturally speaking, we can't say that he did. We have no idea. We don't know that he parted some sea bigger than the Red Sea. We don't know that he raised anybody from the dead. We don't know that he ever healed a sickness. All we know is that he went out and preached repentance and pointed people toward Christ. This is why he's greater, though. You and I are not judged so much on what seems to be flamboyant about our life. We're judged about how much we align our life with God's truth. We're judged on how much we glorify our Lord. That's what you were made for. You were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's what we're judged on. That's how great or not great we are. All the other prophets of the Old Testament spoke in shadows and in figures of speech. They, they pointed toward the coming of Christ, but in ways that seemed vague when compared to John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't speak in figures of speech. He didn't speak in veiled ways. He's the one who prepared the way before the face of Christ. He's the one that stood there, and as he saw Jesus walking by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God, that's him. The one that everybody's been testifying about since the beginning of time is right there. That's him. He didn't have a veiled message. You either agreed with John or you didn't agree with John, but you had no misconception about who he was pointing to and what he was saying about this man. There was no way to really proof text John too much. You couldn't take a sentence out of one of John's sermons, twist it up, and make it so say that somebody other than Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. That's why John was greater than every other prophet all throughout time up until that moment. He did not speak in a veiled way. He was clear about who Christ was. But then Jesus makes the statement that we began with. He said, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, we might more readily accept that Peter and James and John or Paul or any of the other apostles would be greater than John the Baptist, wouldn't we? Kyle, I'm more comfortable with that. I have no, I have no qualms whatsoever about agreeing, yeah, Paul's greater than John the Baptist. I mean, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Okay. He was beheaded too. Okay. But Jesus immediately references the lowest, most base believer as being greater than John. He says, whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Not whoever is the greatest. Not the apostles, with a, you know, the, the capital A apostles here. The real apostles. You and me. The, the little people. The ones that aren't ever going to be, you know, we're obviously not going to make it into the Bible because the Bible's written. When I die, nobody's going to remember me. When you die, not too many people are probably going to remember you. Give us 100 years, our name will have vanished away. Except Kyle's, he'll probably have a gym or something named after us. You don't know. It's been a whole sermon, I couldn't help it, guys. 
Jesus immediately references the lowest believer as being greater than John. Now, how can this be? Well, was John greater than the prophets because of what he did? Obviously, we already said no. He didn't part a sea bigger than Moses did. He didn't call fire down from heaven. He didn't raise anybody from the dead. He's greater than them because his message was greater in that it was more clearly pointing others toward Jesus specifically. New Testament believers are greater than John because we have a message that's greater and clearer than even what John preached. I think a key to understanding this, you can find in Acts 18. In verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What this means is that Apollos was a, he was a Jew, and he knew the Old Testament, and he was skilled in the Old Testament scriptures to the point that he could crush all his rivals in a debate. And he believed in the Messiah, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But he only knew the baptism of John. What that means is that he only had the truth that John would have known about Christ prior to his death. He knew nothing of the crucifixion. He knew nothing about the resurrection. And he knew nothing of the new covenant of grace that has made the old law obsolete to those who are in Christ. Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and they taught him the more accurate way or the greater understanding of the way of following Christ. And in the same way, the most experienced believer is greater than John the Baptist because believers know and trust truths of Christ that John didn't know in this life. We know that Jesus is the Christ, that he has taken all of our sins on himself and bore the weight of God's wrath for us on the cross. We know that his resurrection has occurred, guaranteeing our eventual resurrection from the dead and to eternal life with him. We know that Jesus has passed into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we know that because he is our head and he is already passed there and seated there, then we, the body, are guaranteed a place with our head one day when he returns for us and we will be there eternally because he will always live to make intercession for us. And we know that we no longer need to try to earn righteousness by the law because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, making the law obsolete and he's made us totally righteous. And in this way, we are greater than John. Now here's the challenge real quickly. John Though he had less revelation than we do concerning the gospel, he always promoted Christ above everything else. He didn't try to exalt himself. He always put the spotlight on Jesus. John wasn't concerned with his lot in life um, as he wasn't as concerned with his lot in life as he was that others come to know Jesus as Lord. Even in prison, we see that his concern was that his disciples come to trust Jesus and honor Jesus above even himself. And we possess 
today in this church in Mys, Mississippi, a more robust truth than John had. But the question is, are we who are greater in possession, greater also in practice? That's the question. Are we who are greater in possession, greater also in practice? Are we greater than John in our devotion to Christ? Are we greater than John in our care for others to know him? Are we greater than John in practical ways? Again, I asked the question that we started with, are you greater than John the Baptist? Now, if you're not a believer, the answer is obviously no. But if you are a Christian, the answer may be yes and yes. You may be greater in truth and you may be greater in practice. Unfortunately, I think most of the time, if we're going to be honest, it's most probably going to be yes and no. We are greater in possession, but not greater in practice. We may be greater in understanding, but less in application. And if this is the case, we need to repent. Father, thank you so much for this night. I love you, Lord. I praise you. And I pray that this uh, will stir our hearts over the coming week. Lord, I pray that we won't just hear it and, and lose it. I pray that you'll seal it in our hearts. And Lord, I know for me personally, I pray that you would stir my heart to, to be more concerned every day when I wake up to be intentionally, missionally minded, intentional about pointing people towards you, Lord Jesus. I love you. You deserve every ounce of energy that we can muster. You deserve every ounce of affection, every ounce of devotion, every ounce of everything we have. Lord, for your cause and for the cause of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you would just stir our hearts tonight. Help us be what you called us to be, greater than John the Baptist in every way. Not just in what we possess, but in what we practice. Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit completely. That you'd, you'd stretch us out like wind fills a sail. And you'd push us faster than we've ever gone before in directions we've never sailed before, but in directions that you want us to go. And I pray that we'd be fruitful in all that we do because we honor you above ourselves. We love you, Lord. I pray that you bless our church. I pray that you bless everybody here tonight. Meet every need that they have for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray these things, Father. Amen.